A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It was one of Loud's greatest days at Crow Park. The Sam Maguire Cup held aloft by Dermot O'Brien as the county celebrated victory over Cork on all Ireland final day 1957. We might be small and currently in small in stature, but uh, the hearts were okay. <laughs> 60 years on, we'll be going back in time to relive some of the stories and what some of the central figures remember from when Loud last got their hands in the most prized possession in Gaelic football. It was a well built team, great players, every one of them. When Sam crossed the Boyne is our Bank Holiday Monday documentary here on LMFM just after the one o'clock news. This programme is funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. The year 1957. Irish voters go to the polls as Eamon de Valera returns to power, succeeding Johnny Acostolo as Taoiseach. I've never come to this old city that those gleaming lights did not cheer my heart with welcome. The VHI is founded and it's the first year of the prize bonds. Across the Irish Sea, a reactor catches fire at the Windscale nuclear plant in Cumbria on the English northwest coast, creating Britain's worst nuclear disaster. The Atomic Energy Authority have announced that some uranium cartridges in the centre of the atomic pilot Windscale became overheated yesterday. In the world of music, Elvis Presley was riding high in the charts. I'm all shook up. And on the sporting fields, Kilkenny beat Waterford by a point to claim the All-Ireland hurling title, while in football, 1957 was Loud's year. Well, sugar was great. It was a great boost to, to us as footballers, really, and sugar was wonderful, really. The excitement of the big game. You were determined to do your best. Everyone played for themselves. Everyone looked after themselves. And we listened to the likes of Dan O'Neill, Tom Conlon, Jimmy McDonald, all them fellas. They gave us the best of advice that you would, anyone could get. And they welded us together. The lads were wonderful all down the years since. They were a great, great bunch of lads. Sixty years have now passed since Loud last got their hands on the most prized possession in Gaelic football, the Sam Maguire Cup. Alas, the county has come nowhere close to repeating those heroics. In fact, not even a Leinster title has been secured in the intervening decades. And maybe it's all those lean years which is the reason why the heroes of 1957 are still held in such high reverence to this day and what they managed to achieve against the odds. That final victory over Cork saw the smallest county in Ireland slay the biggest, and it still rates as Loud's finest hour in Gaelic football. But it didn't just happen by chance. Like any All-Ireland, it was hard won, 
and there were plenty of knocks and setbacks along the way before Patsy Geraghty finally blew his full-time whistle to signal victory on that fateful day of Sunday, September the 22nd. For the generation of today, it's now impossible to envisage Loud mixing it with the very best in the country in the height of the summer months, let alone winning an All-Ireland senior title. But in the days of the 40s and 50s, Loud were one of the strongest counties in Leinster, winning five provincial titles in a 14-year spell, and of course going on to land the ultimate prize in 57. Going back even further to the foundation of the association, Loud had a very proud tradition of contesting and winning All-Ireland titles. Local journalist Joe Carroll tells us more. Of course, played in the very first All-Ireland final, beaten by Limerick. And then, in the early part of the 1900s, got to the All-Ireland final in 1909, beaten by Kerry, came back the following year and uh, played Kerry again, or supposed to play Kerry. Game didn't take place, but Lyle got the title, uh, the first title in 1910. And then they won it two years later in 1912. So that was, in fact, three All-Ireland finals in the space of four years. Now, there was a bit of a lull after that. They won the Leinster, of course, in 1912. Didn't win the next one until 1943. So that was a long time to be without a title. Teams like Wexford, they were very big during the teens. Uh, and then you had good Kildare teams, and these are all in Leinster. And then, of course, Kerry always win in All-Irelands. But Louth didn't get back until, didn't win the next Le- Leinster title until 1943. So 43, and then one of the near-misses then after that, Joe, was most notably 1950. That final, the All-Ireland final defeat to Mayo, and that match one that still causes a lot of consternation for a lot of Loud people and supporters. Yes, actually there was was an All-Ireland semi-final prior to that in 1948, beaten by Cavan. But of course, the one that's always remembered and spoken about is the 1950 final, in which Lewis played uh, Mayo. They had beaten Kerry in the semi-final, played Mayo in the final, and I, I always regarded it as Nicky Rowe's match, because Nicky, a great RD player, well, Lewis scored 1-6. Nicky scored all but one point and it looked coming towards the end as if that was going to be enough to give Louth the victory but then very late on Mick Flanagan scored a goal those who are there there aren't many, too many of them around now I'm sure they maintain that he overran the ball and may even have thrown it in the net but Simon Dagnan refereed it he was a Cavan man and the interesting thing about All-Ireland Finals at that time you don't know if there are players who are playing in All-Ireland Finals one year like himself and Simon and uh, Peter McDermott the man with the cap from County Meath they they played in all Ireland finals and yet were a referee in all Ireland finals. I'm not saying there was anything untoward about or anything like that, but that's was ha- what was happening at the time. Another near miss in 1953 won the Leinster final, beat uh, Wexford in the Leinster final, and then played Kerry in the All Ireland semi final. And Louth got an awful hiding in the first half, but then made a great comeback. That was the famous father, Kevin Connolly. He played under the name of Kevin McArdle, came back in the second half and just beaten by three or four points in the, in the finish. That was 1953. As Joe Carroll alluded to earlier, Louth had painful memories of that 1950 All-Ireland final when they were beaten by Mayo. For the Rowe family in RD, it was particularly galling. Nicky had played a stormer, but still ended up on the losing side. Little did the Rowes know, though, that seven years later, another of the siblings, Jim, was to atone in some part for that 1950 disappointment. Jim can remember well watching his older brother suffer that heartbreaking defeat in 1950. I was 13 years of age up in the Cusick stand thinking it was the end of the world. Big brother beaten in an All-Ireland final, Uh, some would say robbed. But then uh, Mayo repaid us in 1957 when he gave us two of our best players. So uh, that's the way things worked out, you know. 
God rest him, Nicky, when he was coming to the end, he says to me one day, he says, you know, he says, we were the only two brothers to start all Irons with Louth. And he was right. Now, the McDonald's, two of them did play in an All-Ireland, but Mickey came out as a sub. But Nicky says the two of us started, you know. So there you are. The assembly of the 1957 team, Jim, how do you remember it coming about? Mid-Loud football would have been very strong around that time. Oh, Mid-Loud football. In fact, Loud football was very good at that time. You had good teams in Mid-Loud. You had good teams in Drogheda. You had good teams in Dundalk. And then you had teams like Stabannon, Roach, uh, Cooley. You know, they were all of a, of a good standard. And you had to be of a reasonable standard yourself to get on those club teams. Never mind get on the county team. So it was a good time. Another player with a connection to that 1950 team was Frank Lynch. His cousin Roger started in that game against Mayo. But in 57, it was Frank's turn to line out on the biggest day on the GAA calendar. Frank was the youngest member of the 57 team, but his path to glory at Crow Park was anything but smooth. As a very athletic school-going teenager at the Maris College in Dundalk, his services to the school's sports teams were in high demand, to a point where he almost ended up playing no sport at all, given the various conflicts. And that tug-of-war almost prevented Frank from being part of Loud's big day. It was a very difficult introduction because, as I said, I played in early 1956 with Loud. I was also playing rugby and had been capped to play with Leinster and played with three or four lads who were later to become internationals. Afterwards, Kevin Flynn, Jerry Tommy, Mick Hipwell. And, uh, of course, the Mars fathers at that time would have great hopes that I would go further. But I had spelled out to them that I had no interest in rugby, that I wanted to play Gaelic football when I left St Mary's College. And there it really ended because I was threatened with all sorts of things if I didn't play rugby. I was captain of the team and uh, eventually when I was picked for Loud on the 28th of October 1956 for the first time, I couldn't play because of an injury sustained in rugby. But I then later played 11th of November 1956 and that was my first game against Ross Common in Elfin under an assumed name because of rugby I presume, but my name was deemed to be Ollie. I had a nickname called Lolly and the result was that I did well enough that day to be picked again when we played against Galway uh, about a week later. Fierce pressure at the time because there was terrible pressure on me at that particular day on the Saturday as to whether I'd be able to play or not on the 18th of November 1956 because of the fact that I was also being considered for the Leinster team against Ulster and Ravenhill. I choose on a bit of a fight and on the efforts of a few priests I got permission to play against Galway in RD and did fairly well. And now I was on the way to somewhere as far as Loud was concerned because remember, I had not been picked for the Loud minor team and I was very disappointed because of that. Spring 1957 then, was that the end of your rugby that late 56 then? Did you play any rugby after that, Frank? I certainly did. We had Tony O'Reilly come down to train us in 1957. We had now reached a semi-final of a senior rugby cup which no college in Dundalk ever achieved. We were now due to play Terra Neuer in the semi-final of the Cup and Tony O'Reilly was brought down to train the sea, was playing with the Lions at the time and after coming home, it was a big uh, factor. And I had been captain of St Mary's College, but I was dismissed as captain because of my rugby or my Gaelic exploits. I was now playing for Loud Juniors as well as Loud Seniors. I was playing with the Geraldines and I was playing rugby with St Mary's College. I was playing everything. At that year, I certainly would have uh, travelled on a bicycle in and out to Logan Green twice a day 
uh, to get my lunch at, uh, and do 16 mile a day on a bicycle at the same time. That's the way it was. Start of the 57 campaign, as you say, you were tied up with the, the county junior team. So That's right, it was, we were after beating Meath and Longford, hammering them, in fact, to reach, you might say, the semi-final, the All-Ireland semi-final in junior. The loud team were due to play Kilkenny in the final, but that was only a matter of a run out because they were poor. And Meath were quite good and uh, Longford were quite good, but were well beaten by Loud, and I was playing centre field at that time with Peter Judge. And now you had a big problem as far as the junior selectors were concerned, because they didn't want to see any of that team broken up. And uh, when the Loud team was picked to play against Carlo, Jim Judge was picked, Mick Garton was picked, and I was picked. And on the Saturday, I had a visit from Jim Quigley, who said to me, we were on the pressure, we'll leave you alone for this game, and we'll see how it goes. And he says, because the loud junior selectors are up in arms about the fact that we are going to break their team up. So we'll leave you alone. That's what they did. And uh, I didn't play against Carlo. They were made three or four changes, but they beat Carlo easy enough, you know, that particular time. While Frank Lynch was very much the new kid on the block in 57, many others on the winning team were around the intercounty scene much longer. A key element in the winning campaign was the Mayo and Mead influences. Dan O'Neill and Shamie O'Donnell arrived from the West, while bridging the Louth-Mead divide was Jim Red Meehan. Jim pulled off a match-saving block late on in the final and will be forever remembered for his wholeheartedness in the red short, even though he was a Mead man and very proud of his Fordstown roots. Sadly, Jim is one of the 57 team no longer alive, but his wife Betty goes back to the time when her late husband formed part of Mead's first All-Ireland winning panel of 1949. He didn't play on the day, but he was a sub and so was his brother Johnny. Then they won the National League in 51 and he went on a tour with them to America. But he loved here in Drogheda, he loved the Nevers and then he was picked to play on the Loud team. He loved it, he loved the training. It was the man that took him here to Drogheda and got him my job in Shields' bakery. The pity they're now defunct, you know, neighbours. He worked with values for about a year and then he went on to work with the county board to bring them to meetings. Uh, they said if he got the taxi, they would give him all the work. He missed out on a few things by switching and being loyal to his Fordstown. He went down to play with them, but they lost. And when he came back here, they had won. But that's life. And by the sounds of it, he blended in well with the, the loud fellas. Oh, he did. He did. They had a great time. Now they did. They did a lot of things when they'd be away on, on the, in the hotels with sheets and pulling one sheets down from another. Jim, one of a select band of players to have won all Ireland's with different counties. Not too many pl- uh, players can boast that. Not too many is right. And I have two, two All-Ireland and two Lancers, so I have two children, so they get two of me. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Carroll setting out on that Leinster Championship campaign of 57 what would expectations have been like among Loud players and supporters? It wouldn't have been great because Loud did nothing in 55 or 56 but then in 1957 the first round beat Carlo in Navan it was a decisive in the finish but it wasn't a good performance by any means and then it more or less took off after that beat Wexford in the next round Kildare in the semi-final Dublin in the Leinster final a great it was played in the downpour in 1957 and then the semi-final against uh, Tyrone won that easily enough and then the final of course against Cork Leinster that year around that time Joe would have been very competitive not like today Ah, oh, yeah, it was very very competitive Kildare won the title in 1956 Dublin Ollie Freedy Kevin Heffern and all those they had played in 1955 I think they were beaten by Kerry in the All-Ireland final in 1955 but they were strong but Louth came right got stronger as the competition went along there were only 8 of the All-Ireland team 
played against uh, Carroll in the first round. So what about the winning team, the panel, and how it was assembled? For one, Dermot O'Brien, the man who ultimately had the honour of being the winning captain, could hardly have envisaged what was to transpire that summer. For a start, his inter-county career seemingly ended three years earlier, and there were others like Tom Conlon and Jimmy McDonnell who were off the scene with little intention of donning the red short ever again. The late Dermot's sister, Mary, can recall what changed. My mother didn't like him being injured. There's a lot of stories about Mammy and football. She didn't like him being injured, and as a respect for her, he stopped playing him. And then they came looking for him, and she'd, he'd come back from Navin. He was working in, in Navin. The council. That's right, yeah. And he'd come home, and she said, they're looking for you, Dermot. You better go back. You better go, oh, no, I don't have I get No, you have to go back. They're looking for you. They, they really want you there. So that's how he went back. He had her blessing, and he went. Well, Mayo may have denied Loud in 1950, but in 57, two men from the West were to play huge roles in the All-Ireland winning campaign. Dan O'Neill had already won quite a bit in the green and red of his native county, but in 1956 he was persuaded to declare for his adopted county. That was his first year playing for the now defunct St Dominic's Club in Drogheda. For the opening Leinster Championship match against Carlo in Navin, he was in alongside a certain RD man at centre field. Kevin Behan and myself, we weren't an ideal partnership, little and large, but the little part of him was very large. You see, and as Napoleon said to his captain, when Napoleon was hanging a picture on the wall and he couldn't reach the nail, his captain says, I'll hang it up for you. He says, I'm bigger than you. And Napoleon looks around and he says, you're not bigger than me, you're just taller. So that's the same about Kevin yeah. Behan. Dan, as I said, we were like little and large. He was big, you know, uh, and I was small. Dan went for every ball, so I never clashed with him. But I was a coordinator, providing and seeing opportunities for scores. That that was my function, and it worked. And how did you end up as a midfielder? Because you were more of a, an attacker, Kevin. Ah, you had a reputation as a forward, but I, I loved playing in the middle of the field because you could create scores. You know, and the kick that I got out of football at any time was seeing a forward on the run and you giving them a ball, but more so than scoring. And then when you saw your own opportunity, you went in and took it. And it worked. <laughs> but you weren't your typical midfielder, let's say. You were five foot seven, eleven and a half stone, and uh, you hadn't the biggest feet. Wait a minute. Five foot seven and a half. Don't forget the half. <laughs> Don't forget the half. And eleven stone three. But my uh, weight went into the paper at twelve and a half stone and five foot ten. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> We're giving you a few inches here and there. And a few. I think I give them to myself because I didn't want to be killed. <laughs> Patsy Coleman, wing back on the 57 team. The early stages of that campaign, Patsy, um, the second game was against Wexford. You had beaten Carlo. You played in the Carlo game. Then the Wexford match. And that was significant from the point of view in defence because Tom Conlon had come out of retirement for that game. That's right, Colm. Tom came back out of retirement and he uh, he was the big difference with us in that year anyway because he, he welded us all together, really, you know. What was he like to play alongside? Oh, one of the best. The advice he'd give you would be solid gold. Uh, he was he was the man that kept us all going, you know, like we were young at the time and he was the veteran, as we'd say, and uh, the advice he gave us was what kept us going. And there was a feeling at going into that Wexford game that a bit of experience was needed because you weren't all that impressive the first day out against Carlo. Oh, we were very lucky against Carlo. Very, very lucky. 
uh, they scraped through there in Callum. No one gave us a chance after the, that match. But when Tom Condon came back, he made all the difference, Callum. And Tom Condon had another 21-yard line. He took the shot of block down by Tom Condon. Jimmy McDonnell, who made a slightly later return to the fold than Tom Conlon, is another who identifies with the significance of bringing the Stabannon legend out of retirement. And after the first couple of rounds of the championship that year, apparently a whole lot of the players, Stephen White would be one of the principals because I knew him the best. But they figured if they had a few changes in the team, they could win something. And the first man they got to play was Tom Conlon. They got Tom to come back and play full-back. But Tom was a very, very good full-back. And he could do what very few full-backs could do. The big, long, tough, rough guys that played on the square were no problem to Tom Conlon. Tom didn't like the little tricky fellas. Didn't like the likes of Johnny Ross running around between his legs and things like that. And Dan O'Neill, too, feels the selectors got it right when they chose to mix experience and youth. We started to put the team together, which was marvellous. We needed an anchor man on the full-back line because that's where games are won and lost. Are a weak fullback, you have a lesser chance of winning the game. So White went to Tom Conlon and asked him to come out of retirement. Tom was a huge man and very strong, great hands. And he succumbed to the temptation to come out and play because we were now we were doing well. And he came out as fullback and that was marvellous. And then what we needed then was strength up on the front line because um, our lads weren't tall. Jim Rowe was about five nine and the same as Sean Cunningham, not tall. And you needed power in there. But the Rowe was a class player. Cunningham was a fast player and a very good. He had soccer instincts in him. He knew where the ball might be. Or half hour then with Dermot O'Brien, a very classy player, lovely ball player, could sort of run and dodge and score. And of course, Shimmy O'Donnell, as I've said, was to me one of the greatest players that ever came out of the West. He was right wing, and on the other side, we needed a left half forward, and we didn't have to look any further than the young lad, Frank Lynch. He was in the Maris College playing great rugby and everything. So we, uh, we got Frank Lynch to play at 18, and they said, if you're good enough, you're old enough. And that was Frank Lynch, one of the best players, I think, that we produced afterwards too. Jim McArdle, you are so unlucky to have missed out on the All-Ireland final against Cork. You got injured in the semi-final, but you did play in the earlier matches, uh, including the Leinster final against Dublin. Did you feel the team that was being assembled had the capabilities of putting a run of results together? I had played from, uh, say, 1951 through the lean years. I knew that uh, early on in 1957 that there was something different about the team. There was a, uh, there was a spirit there and a camaraderie that uh, hadn't been there on previous teams. Would it be right in saying that Kildare matched the semi-final when you beat Kildare had been the reigning Leinster champions was that the game maybe that you'd signal in loud as the match that maybe showed that you were capable of going somewhere? Well I think after that we had uh, a bit of belief in ourselves that uh, and then with uh, uh, Jimmy McDonnell and Tom Conlon coming back out of retirement uh, and they got better as, 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 as they came on well Jimmy couldn't have been much better than he was against Kildare where his three goals and I think two points was a, a tremendous lift to Louds or a, a, a would have beaten Kildare on its own so that was tremendous really and that Kildare match will be best remembered for the contribution of one man Jimmy McDonald from Darver I hadn't played with Louds and didn't see myself as going back on Loud because I was married and we had a couple of kids and they came to me it was just before the Leinster semi-final and I agreed to play and I went out to play against Kildare in the semi-final. I got the ball in my hands uh, in contact with the ball about seven times during the game and I, I scored six of them. 
But Pentecost, he had told me years before, people laugh at these things, but there'll always be some day in the football career where everything will go well for you. Jimmy McDonald, scorer of 3-3 that day, putting an end to Kildare's reign as Leinster champions. And so it was on to the provincial decider and a meeting with Dublin. Young Frank Lynch, who by this stage had put his rugby commitments to one side, got his first taste of action, having sat out the earlier matches. I was picked as a sub for Wexford and Kildare. Loud was still in there with the juniors and their problem then came with injuries and all the rest of it for the Loud team at that time and I was put into action on the, on the left wing then. The Leinster final against Dublin. Final against Dublin, yeah. There were changes made for every game. Patsy Coleman was injured that day and couldn't play. And uh, I think Peter Smith or somebody like that was pressed into action at that time. Patsy, that injury you picked up in the semi-final against Kildare, reluctantly you had to accept that it was going to keep you out of the Leinster final against Dublin. I felt a bit of a pain in the arm, but uh, Loud was going so well I wasn't going to let on to anybody that I was injured. So I didn't tell anybody I was injured. So we were training then for the Leinster final... And the arm started to come round. It was resetting itself. So then I had a voice captain on. So I had to go into the Lourdes then. And they broke the arm again. And uh, plastered us. And the surgeon, which was uh, Mr Sheehan at the time, he plastered me from my fingers to the top of my uh, shoulder because he says, we're going to have to keep you quiet. The Leinster final against Dublin, you would have known some of the Dublin players, Kevin, because you had been playing club football uh, with Sean McDermott. I was playing club football in Dublin and I, I knew a lot of them. And I mean, I, I, I didn't enjoy playing football in Dublin. But what I did learn was we were as good as some of the fellas that were up there. You know, and that was a big thing to bring back to the fellas, you know. I mean, and, and Sean McDermott said three of the own team, but half the Leitrim team. And uh, we just look at it in, in objectively and say, look, we've lads down in our little plot are just as good as these, you know. That was the message you were bringing back to the loud lads? That was the message I, I, I brought back quietly, you know, and, uh, and it worked. Because it was true. The Dublin game, how hard was that for you looking on from the sidelines? Oh, that was very hard looking on for that match. And then the funny thing about it was that um, behind me, Ollie Rayleigh, was the opposite to me. Ollie was a great man to take the ball out of the air. And he was very easy in his way of going and still get there in time. And in all the times that I played in front of Ollie, he never was injured. Never. And the one day that I wasn't in front of him, he got his nose broken. And Barney McCoy came in to replace him in the Leinster final. I was the captain, in, non-playing captain in the Leinster final and received the cup on part of the Hogan stand was part of it gone. And after that Leinster final, Kevin, it was on to the All-Ireland semi-final against Tyrone then, another county whose players you had a bit of experience of. Well, Tyrone, I went to school in Armagh, you know, and I'd, I'd have known an awful lot of the Tyrone teams. I was afraid of my life of Iggy Jones, because Iggy Jones was one of the best colleges player ever was. But Stephen managed him, you know, and then you had the two Devlins. Frank Higgins was in the middle of the field with Jody O'Neill and... Uh, I looked at Frank and he looked at me. I used to be picking him on teams in Armagh. I said to myself, Frank, I'm still picking you. That's only to give yourself something to go on, you know. Yeah, yeah. You have to give yourself these little G-ups. <laughs> and we had our own psychology. Jim McArdle, that Tyrone game, tell us about the injury you sustained. I got uh, injured coming uh, towards the end of the match. A Catholic knee injury. I knew then that I wouldn't be playing because I had the experience from my other knee and I knew how long it would take to uh, get me mobile again. So I kind of knew at that stage that nobody, nobody else uh, 
knew about it really, or that there was as serious as it was. For somebody that just lived from a schoolboy to even dream of playing for Loud and then to not be fit to play in the final was just devastating and it took me a good while to, to get over it but so that's, that's like maybe if I was playing they could have been beaten maybe. Patsy Coleman, the lead into the All-Ireland final then. You made your return as a sub in the game against Tyrone. How hopeful were you, Patsy, of winning your starting place back? I was hoping I would anyway, Colm, because I was fully fit. And uh, one thing about me was that uh, I never let my fitness drop. I kept uh, the momentum up as a yards the training. Even when I wasn't playing in Lens final with the arm tied up, I still, even down in Dundalk when we were training, I was training with the arm and it padded up with the, after getting the plaster cut off it, you know. So I was as fit as fiddle and ready to go, Colin. And what way was the team announced those days, Patsy? Did you know a few days before it or was it the day itself? When did fellas, when were fellas told by the management that they were starting? Well, the best thing of all would be, I remember, it'd be J.D. Hickey and Paddy Puzzle would come to the training session and the boys would be inside the selectors and the team selected. And I thought it was a wonderful thing. You knew about three to four days beforehand that you were going to be playing and you were setting yourself up for it, you know. You knew you weren't coming in at the last second or anything like that. You knew you were on the team, and that was it, you know. And would the team would be announced in the newspapers and such? That was the beautiful thing about it. There was a, a paper that time in our time called Evening Press, and uh, Joe Sherwood used to do an article for the Gaelic in it, and he'd always have the Loud team in it. And the one thing that I can remember about that, the supporters and loud each supporter would pick a team and there'd be more loud teams went into that paper just you know like everyone was so everyone had a team you know that type of thing column everybody trying to guess the right yeah, combination that was just exactly it everyone tried to get the right combination did the captaincy then for the final there was a toss was there between yourself and them we just never say anything about that one column <laughs> we, we did keep that one in a closed bag <laughs> <laughs> Well, the captaincy issue aside, the whole county was buzzing at the prospect of facing Cork. Dan O'Neill, for one, could sense the level of anticipation within his adopted county. There was tremendous uh, excitement about that game. You see, Loud went wild to be in the All-Ireland again with a young team that nobody knew anything about. They gave us nobody, I'm not saying in Loud, but the country didn't give us any credits at all. Didn't give us credits, you see. But I want to tell you, if you looked at every player on that team, Starting with Sean Oldflood, a great keeper, who was superb in goal, very courageous. And then you had Tom Connett, and then you had the Red meeting over from Meath, mm-hmm. and Ali Riley. Now, any of those three would be picked in any team in Ireland. And you go to the half-back time, we were unfortunate to lose Jim McCarthy. Jim was an outstanding centre half-back. But then we had Pather Smith to stand in, and we had, of course, then Stephen White, the greatest, I believe, the greatest halfback of his time. We had Patsy Coleman, a stalwart. As I say about Patsy Coleman, he was a strong, he was so resolute, and he was a great man to have behind you. He stopped everything. To be honest, most games are won at midfield. Sure. But I had the problem that uh, Kevin was so small that uh, I felt it was necessary for me to challenge most kick out. And by doing that, even if I, once I broke that ball, I had a great chance of Kevin getting it. And he did invariably get that ball, and he could make good use of it. He was an intelligent player, and uh, strong. 
Each of us got a, a pair of boots from uh, Conley's that time, which was nice. It was lovely to get a new pair of boots. I brought my boots from Mayon, and they had glass to that length, kicking around and everything. Needless to say, the Loud players were under strict orders to get to bed early on the night before the big day. For panel member Barney McCoy, though, it wasn't necessarily the best advice. Well, they'd be all saying, get to bed early. At the time you go to bed early, you won't sleep. If you go out and have a few points or something, <laughs> and, and a sink down or something, you'd sleep far better. For Jimmy McDonald, an All-Ireland medal that seemed so unlikely just months earlier was within touching distance. But an injury that wasn't public knowledge at the time almost put paid to his chances of facing the Rebels. It's different in those days. You'd roll up your sleeve for the last fortnight and train like hell. That was the way we'd prepare for a match. So I went up to RD. We were trained two nights before the final. Each day that passed, I was getting a little bit better. I was expecting not to be picked. And Jimmy Carr was injured. And he was never going to play. But they picked him too. They didn't tell the press that I was injured. That's the way they walked in those days. I went up the croaker anyhow and made all the preparations and went out to play and didn't really make much of an impression. Jim Rowe, your recollections of the day itself? Got up about 8 o'clock, went to Mass and hardly the rest of the fellows were there at Mass too. And about 11 o'clock, Pat Boyle, who brother of Sean Boyle's now. Pat was the taxi driver and he collected us from wherever we were, off we went. It was just like any other day from that point of view. You were collected, you were brought up, you went into the dressing room, you got changed, you went out and you played the game. Betty Meehan, your late husband Jim, what do you remember of the occasion, the, the day of the game itself? You got four tickets, that's all he got. I got one, cousin of his got another, and his brother got one. Four tickets. And then there was very small Hogan sound that time and you had to be on the music. And we drove from Drogheda, he had a small car, and we went to his sister's on the hill of Holt, the summer's in. And when we went out there, they were all gone to the match. He was going into the hotel, and I said, Jimmy, please, please now, don't fight, or don't be put off, because you're not from the county. <laughs> so, thank God he did well that day. Mario O'Brien, a huge day for all the families of the various players. How do you remember the morning of the final? We left RD, uh, my father, mother, two sisters and myself and my uncle Tom. We were all crammed into Dermot's car and he drove as far as this bed and breakfast place or a pub on the left hand side, just outside Ashburn. And he went ahead, he joined Pat. Pat Boyle was waiting for him there and he took him to Dublin and my Uncle Tom drove the rest of the way into Dublin. I remember, I can't even tell you what girls were wearing. They had a red blazer and a white pleated skirt, two lassies. And uh, I had had a ticket until I got to Crow Park and then my ticket was taken and uh, given to my uncle and they shoved me over a fence and I got in and I sat on Daddy's knee at the match. I remember quite a lot of the match. I didn't sit near, the, near my mother. She was further down, sitting beside Jamie O'Donnell's father. They had a good view because they were in the front row. But I, I was sitting there, as I said, on Daddy's knee. What age were you, Mary? Twelve. Well, turning to you, Trina, you were another of Dermot's sisters. You were just seven at the time. And uh, needless to say, all your attention as well was on your older brother. It didn't seem to me as if there was anyone else playing. Only <laughs> you know, I just watched him all the time, number 11, number 11. Oh, there he is, Mammy. And uh, so I was coming along and uh, Mammy was crying. And uh, I said, why are you crying, Mammy? And my sister Tony had her arms around her. 
uh, mommy said, oh, they're going to lose, they're going to lose. And then um, they got the goal. And But when I looked around when mommy was crying, there was a lot of men and women, you know, in the seats behind me. And um, they were up high and they had not um, lovely red and white hats or anything. They had flowers like uh, rose and white rose, a red rose and white rose. Or they had uh, bachelor's buttons. They were an old flower, uh, red and white. But they had their rosary beads out. And they were saying the rosary <laughs> in the seats behind us. I'll never forget the rosary beads and the men there saying the rosary because, and then everybody just went mad. And mommy was up and my sister was up and it was just so exciting. It was so exciting. Katrina, yeah. I mean, it is that bit different when you have a family me- member playing in an All-Ireland yeah. final and to add to that, he was team captain. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I, Of course, I wouldn't have been aware of, uh, you know, what a captain was <laughs> really as anything, just a footballer. But at the same time, you know, he was number one and <laughs> that was it, you know, we were so proud. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But Mammy, it must have been just a wonderful thing for Mammy and Daddy. And Mary, back to you. We're pointing out that Dermot was carrying an injury into the game and on the day of the match itself, he had a problem getting into Crow Park. He had no badges or nothing to show who he was. And he said, I'm the loud captain. Oh, yes, you tell that to somebody else. So the team, the, the rest of the team members, they went ahead as, as planned to Crow Park, but Dermot was left behind getting the injection. Yeah, that's right. And he eventually got in. He eventually got in. When some of the fans were shouting, let O'Brien in, and the guy realised that it was Dermot O'Brien and... Let him in. This was only a very short time before the game. He was racing across the pitch and, and Tanoi was saying, would the loud captain please come to the dressing room? And tell me, how, how worried was he about the injury leading into the final? I don't think he was that worried, but it was hurting and that's why he did the injection, I think, just to give himself a chance. I remember saying to him, you didn't score that day. I said, but I couldn't. I was injured. <laughs> he really took it, took it hard. He really turned to me and said, I couldn't. Patsy Coleman, the, the rituals that took place before the big matches that year, you had your own way of doing things. Some of us could eat before a match. Some of us couldn't. I was the one fella that couldn't eat in 
Every one of them championship matches, you believe this, you wouldn't see it done now. I used to have my dinner taken at six o'clock in the morning. Six, my mother would have me dinner at six o'clock in the morning. Give you a clear run of the day. That's right. And then that'd be all I'd eat before the match. They wouldn't eat, couldn't, couldn't eat anymore before the match then. And the peculiar thing about it was the very good thing, a good friend and Stephen White, God be good to him too. I'd always step in the one place in the corner in the dressing room in Crow Park and Stephen White would always be beside me. Stephen would sit right beside me in that corner. We'd two of us be in that one corner there. Bit of superstition. Uh, we used to have that superstition as right, Colin. Frank Lynch, youngest member of the team, and here you are, biggest day of the year at Crow Park. I didn't realise possibly the enormity of the whole lot, of the whole programme. The fact that here was I, young for the playing in the North Ireland final, and to think that the players that I hailed as my heroes never got a North Ireland medal and never had the chance maybe of playing in a North Ireland final, you know? Kevin Behan, you are one of the most distinctive loud players to take to the field that day. Loud were wearing the green and white colours of Leinster, but around the ankles, your attire stood out from the rest. There's a story about that, and there's a nice story about it. Comfortable feet to me were always very important. And before the match, I had a pair of old socks that, that were like nylons, and they wouldn't fill your boot. I had an old pair of red and white socks that an aunt of mine, uh, Lally, knitted for me, and there were more patches on them, but they filled me boot. In 1953, they threw a pair of socks before the match, and, you put, and your, your foot was swinging in it. No good. And it was a tribute to the good lady yourself because I mean she kept me spotless with my gear tick wool and I mean I, I wouldn't have swapped them for anything because I had a chance of a goal in 53 and I swear that it was because my feet weren't that comfortable they were lucky socks they fitted the, the feet very well now, the, the feet they had to, I had only six and a half in, in a shoe or a boot and was a normal football boot or a rugby boot you had it was an English rugby boot a cotton Oxford boot which is a beautiful boot my brother-in-law, Paddy Smith from Cavan, with his two All-Aaron medals, he had them. So what was good enough for him was good enough for me. If I have to make a comment about the Goosey Burke, who was my personal cobbler, he raised the cogs in the back and in the middle and short in the front. Get down to him on a Sunday morning and he'd do it for you. And if it's either the All-Aaron final or semi-final, he gets in to Croke Park saying he was the personal cobbler to the Loud team. And I think he got in the sideline. This game is well underway with Cork attacking. The finals I played in, everyone out in the field, and there was so much to win. The whole thing became frantic. Fellas were playing and they were kicking the ball and they were dashing around. But they weren't calming down and playing football like we normally would. That was the excitement of the big game. You were determined to do your best. And every time a hay ball, and there were quite a few 50s and things, every time a ball dropped into the Cork Square, we couldn't get in there. They had a ring of players, a ring of steel around the edge of the square for every hay ball. And we made several attempts to charge through them, and we couldn't get in. The time you get in, they'd have all cleared. And that's the way the game went on, until the very end. Jim Rowe, you scored three points in the final against Cork. What, what do you remember of the Cork man that was keeping tabs on you? Well, Marco was a big fella called uh, Mick Gould. He afterwards he became a vet. He was a big, tough fellow. He didn't spare me now during the game, to put it mildly. And I wasn't a great one for mixing it. You know, I had a, I had a good turn of speed, which kept me out of trouble most of the time. But he was a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so what, were the, what were the exchanges like during the match now between the two of you? Not gentlemanly, but like that. No, we, we, we took whatever score we were there to get. We got a free, with about, I think about a quarter of an hour to go. 
We were a point behind. Easiest free in the world, straight in front of the goals, 14 yards out. And just before I walked up to it, I noticed there's only three men on the line. And I said, now will I be brave or will I be stupid? I was stupid and I put the ball over the bar. <laughs> but it was the sort of situation where if you hit the right ball, you could have had a goal. But anyway. He gets the ball out to Nelly Doug and Nelly sends a high one and it's dropping right down on top of the net and it's a goal! And Neely Duggan's goal in the first half for Cork, obviously it was a setback at that stage, but uh, you kept at your task. Oh, we did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Neely got no change out of... That's the only thing he got out of Tom Connan all day. Tom was marvellous. We just kept at it. We kept struggling away. Paddy Harrington would say that we were like a crowd of terriers. You know, we might be small and counting and small in stature, but uh, the hearts were okay, you know. Kevin, yourself and Dan O'Neill at the centre of the field, you were up against Sean Moore and Eric Ryan, and by all accounts, they were having the better of the exchanges. Well, the where, I mean, if Dano didn't play well, I didn't play well, because I was a bit dependent on him, even though in club matches I could handle him. But we were playing as a unit, you know. I would, I, I, I never, ever challenge Dano for a catch that year in the middle of the field I let him do whatever he wanted to do but if I was on my own I'd have a go all right because I, I, there's nothing as bad as seeing two players in the one team crossing one another and possibly losing the ball to the, to the enemy you know <laughs> and, and it was yourself and Shamey O'Donnell was it that switched positions correct and right and he's in the best of form I was down with him last week and he's in great form and Stephen White went centre half because there was a bit of a breeze coming down the middle there and uh, it worked. You were chasing the game at this stage? Correct. Cork, big, strong, awkward men. And basically, they've improved a bit, but they didn't know what the two white things, the goalposts were for. You know, you could leave them in front of the goals and they'd hit the corner flag, which was a good thing for us. Our six forwards, half a chance to have a score, which is a great thing. They all complemented one another. OB was a very intelligent footballer. Frank Lynch came in, fearless, Go through a wall. Uh, Shamey O'Donnell was as good a player as ever I came across. Sean Cunningham, breaking ball. Jimmy was the daddy in the middle and Jim Rowe. Deadly arc. Jim Rowe was an excellent place kicker. And other uh, fella in the middle of the field. We had two middle and good place kickers. But one good one anyway. That was Jim Rowe. Cork <laughs> with a score one goal and four points. That is seven points. Lead loud with a score five points. Betty Meehan, Jim was suffering from a very heavy cold uh, going into the game at Crow Park. And as the players come out for the second half, you were a little bit concerned. There's a man by the name of Young from Cork. And he wrote in a book that there was one missing. And it was Jim Meehan at halftime. I said, where is he? Tom Gaffney, that had the pub in the Hillahote, had given him a small whiskey. Oh, Tom said he must be drinking. <laughs> so he ran, and your man wrote about it and said, he rambled down the sideline like a boy going back to school. And the second half, they were waiting on him to come out. It was like that. You'd be looking for Jimmy for photographs. You wouldn't know where he'd be. Kevin, the moment that the goal when it arrived, it was you, of course, that sent the sideline ball in. First thing I'm going to ask you about it, did you go for a point or were you looking to lob it, lob it in a bit short? Oh, a lob across the goals. Because you had, amongst other things, you had Jimmy McDonald there and he'd, he'd, be, he'd be deadly around the square. Sean Cunningham got it or somebody got it anyway. There were doubts about it, but I couldn't give a damn who got it as long as it went in. But it was an eight iron. Into the, you lose the golfing parlance. <laughs> And they just put it across. There's no point of going for a point. And it worked. But there was an awful lot of practice went into that. I trained an awful lot on my own. You know, and they were all the time clipping balls and what have you, you know. And you become very accurate after the time. And there goes the ball right across the corner. And it's the goal! It's the goal! 
my man Cunningham, he was playing right corner forward. I looked out and there was no one on the right corner. And the big sin in those days, corner forward's job was not to let the ball run out over the end line. That was a serious error. And I looked out and there was no corner forward. And I was being marked very tight. They had changed the man. They had taken the centre-half back to mark me in the last ten minutes, which was a mistake, because their centre-half was had poor damage tied up as I was tied up. But as soon as they moved the centre-half in and me, that out midfielder started to come up the middle. Behan took this ball anyhow, and I ran out along the end line, just in case, and uh, the ball sailed over my head, and the left full-back tried to catch it, tried to prevent it going over the bar. I thought it would go over the bar, it was tipping their fingers. And while they were all standing stationary, Cunningham, the corner forward, ran in from my position and punched it into the net. He was the smallest man in there, but they weren't watching him. But he went out in that field that day with an obsession that he wanted to score a goal, and he scored it. I was within two feet of it, and the one thing that I always regretted was that I didn't pull on the ball as it crossed the lane, but instead of that, I jumped for glee because it had crossed the lane. And maybe that was a selfish approach to things, you know. Patsy Coleman, when the ball came in, second half, along the sideline, Kevin Behan sent it in, and the ball ended up in the, the cork net. What do, you, what do you remember, or what were your emotions at that stage? Oh, sure, Dan Murray, the cork uh, left full-back, he actually, Dan would tell you himself, he actually had the ball... He could feel the ball in his hands when Sean Cunningham jumped up and punched it into the back of the net. He had actually could feel the ball in his hands until next thing was, was punched into the back of the net. Dan Murray, cornerback on the Cork team. Dan, your name regularly comes up when we start talking about that loud goal in 57, Sean Cunningham's effort. Uh, your, your take on the goal? I still remember that goal that went in off, off, uh, off the, the corner forward. Sean Cunningham. Sean Cunningham. I met Sean Cunningham when we were invited up to the, the 50th anniversary. And I met Sean Cunningham's sons. Sean, God rest him, has gone to his rewards and then, but I shall never forget and I shall never forgive him uh, for, for the, the goal that he scored off me. Paddy Driscoll sent the ball out over the sideline and Kevin Behan took the sideline kick and I called Paddy Driscoll and said Paddy I have it covered and I always at that I had got so many frees as a corner back by doing something which wasn't, which wasn't correct that is I was a good fielder I caught the ball kept my hands out and invariably the forward will put his hand in behind your hand and try and punch the ball over hands and I closed my elbows and then the referee got several frees out I did the very same this time but unfortunately Sean Cunningham didn't put his hand in behind where I thought he would he put it in front and just caught my hand and pulled him apart I have a photograph at home which shows it very clearly and the ball just dribbled over the line so the ball just dropped from my hand then because and we went in over the line it was too late for us to come back the momentum was with Loud at that stage the momentum was with Loud at that stage yeah, and more luck to them I believe it would have gone in if nobody had touched it uh, but uh, thank God Sean Cunningham got up very well and Aidan McGuinness tells the story that he met I think it was Paddy um, Driscoll afterwards talking about the goal and he said that it had been agreed before the game that if the ball came across that way that O'Driscoll would take it and the first man who could have taken it that day was Dan Murray Dan obeyed the rules let the ball go and it was going and it was behind him <laughs> so he had a goal The last few minutes what it must have been like playing it out I'm sure you were aware the clock was ticking down and you know you were edging towards victory Jim Yeah I, you, you didn't really 
take note of the time you know you just slogged away did whatever you had to do when the whistle game it was a relief I can tell you the two point lead it's always a dangerous lead in a game of football always dangerous Cork really put us under tremendous pressure in the last five minutes I'd say in the last ten minutes I was about the only forward who was up the field everybody was back down giving a hand the last five minutes were Patsy Garrity was from Galway the referee and I knew him and I remember we kicked the ball into the Cork goal and it went wide and I was running back out for the kick out and then passing Patsy I says Patsy how long to go four minutes then hold on he said to me and this goal was scored about ten minutes before and we were hanging in there can't you imagine the strain of all the players thinking that they can't make a mistake here one mistake and we're gone we needed our backs to be strong I remember the last few minutes I fouled Eric Ryan about 30 yards out and he was the free taker and nothing short of a goal was any good to them. And he, he chipped more or less the ball into the square and that's where the, the trouble started. The ball was kicked around and I think it was Eamon Gullinger so got the ball and he kicked it for goal. I don't know who blocked it, but then came in again, and, and that's when Red Meehan got it. Betty Meehan, tell me about the match-winning save uh, late on, a story that's been told many and many's a time since. Well, I was on the Cusick stand, and there was a lot of loud people around, and I could see the ball was going to that corner. Well, when it was saved, they all came down on top of me. <laughs> it was just wonderful. It's, it's a great thing, even only to win one, one All-Ireland. I think it's as good as ten. Because it was the last minute, Lloyd were leading by two. Had that ended up in the back of the net, Cork oh, would surely have won the game. Yes, they would have. Well, thank God. How did Jim describe that uh, save afterwards? Was he modest about it? Or? Very modest man. Oh, yeah, nothing would. Uh, he never, it wouldn't come to him that he done that. He said, well, never stop writing about me. <laughs> but the red come out anyway, and his, foot, his kick was blocked. And it was cleared out again, and uh, Stephen White got it. And he kicked it up into the, into the Q6 stand, and Patsy Garrity blew the final whistle. He's going to right up the field, the referee's called for the whistle, and the Ireland and Scotland are now. Yes, now they've won the title. The, the feeling down at the full-time whistle, can you remember the joy and the, the delight? Indeed, uh, the place was mad. And everybody was mad. The dressing rooms were absolutely crowded. I can still see one or two men that I knew trying to get into the dressing room. One of those was a man called Owen Rogers from Dowdlesill. And somehow he had the door closed on him. And he didn't really like it, you know. The man that closed it was quite right because uh, he had no alternative. Uh, there, there was no room for any more. Pandemonium. Pandemonium. I remember Sean, Sean Flanagan and Mayo coming in and talking to Jimmy McDonald and that type of thing in the corner, congratulating him. And oh, it was just, uh, it was delirious. There was no doubt about that. And for yourself, Dan, is, is that an incident, the goal? Is it something that still haunts you? Do you think about it much still 60 years on? I always think about it. Anytime we talk about football, I always think about it. We had played so many, I played a lot of football with Cork and I, uh, my football came to a very, uh, an end at a very early age at 26 years of age because of a cartilage problem with my knee and I was only 22 that time and winning the, and, and that all on a final but feet from Loud are very difficult because we had been a very good team from 54 up to 57 uh, we had we had, we had, we had done quite well we, we, Kerry only beat us by two points on 55 All-Ireland and they beat Dublin in the final 
and the 56, we were beaten by Galway, and the 57, we were beaten by Louds. And Loud uh, certainly wasn't, well, uh, nobody thought that they would beat Cork at, that, at the time, but certainly they, they, they proved that all, the, all the experts wrong. At the final whistle, obviously, Dermot as captain was going to have to go up the Hogan stand, but uh, there was, I'm sure there was mayhem on the, on the pitch. Everybody rushing to congratulate the players. It looked fantastic. Now, yeah, yeah I'd be in the middle of it. Wasn't allowed then. And there was good sportsmanship because the Cork uh, centre half Paddy Driscoll he made a beeline to Dermot to congratulate him. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it was lovely. What happened then when the, obviously the presentation or whatever? Presentation. Well, we didn't go to anything of that. We went home. Had you a chance to talk to Dermot between the end of the game and he arrived back in RD the following night? No, 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 no phones. Jim McCardle, you didn't start the final. Of course, you were injured. What was it like down along the sideline at the end of the game? I was on the subs bench. Yeah, well, it was disappointing but it was different for me than for the lads that played on the team really because uh, they were part of it I, I felt part of it but I wasn't uh, it wasn't the same as playing in it people that get injured like that I, I always felt uh, own listen for Kerry well he had a, an appendix operation or something I couldn't play in the final in, on, one, on one occasion so I, I felt for him then that disappointment it was but so that's life Really, but you still got your All Ireland medal. Oh, I did, yes. So Jim Rowe, the match won, the cup collected, the Sam Maguire by Dermot O'Brien. You left Crow Park, then it was on to the team hotel, and you stayed there overnight. In Dublin at the Hollybrook Hotel, and I think it was owned by a loud man, a man called Brennan. I mean, I think more people come in through the windows that night than come through the front door. <laughs> this was mad. That must have been some night now in the hotel with, with the Sam Maguire and everybody in such great form. It was great. And you had somebody like Dano, God rest him. Dan only Dano was a great man for the papers. But only if it had mentioned Dano. <laughs> and Dano was in the room at, I don't know, three or four o'clock in the morning. And somewhere he got his hands on the papers and he'd be reading through it. And the only part he'd mention is, Dano did this and Dano did that. You know. he, was a, he was a character. A lovely man. Would you have had much dealings with the county board officers? Were they close to the team? Jimmy Mullen was the chairman, and Jimmy was a great chairman. Very, very good. Paddy Carney was the county secretary. Paddy was very much by the book, you know, and probably had to be. But uh, they were the two that you would be mainly involved with. Frank, can you remember the following day, the Monday, uh, the homecoming, the plans? Who, who, who organised the homecoming? In what way did oh, that? You had the large supporters club in, uh, in, in Dublin. And that was headed by Paddy Markey. No better man to do it. Paddy Markey and uh, Eddie Boyle, a man called Thornton. There was um, quite a a few well-known individuals at that time in Loud. There was a good, really good um, Loud supporters uh, club. And they were based all in Dublin and they organised everything. They left nothing to chance and they did a marvellous job. And they ensured that everybody enjoyed themselves and all that type of thing. There's no question about that. Couldn't have done more. And, of course, everybody and anybody was in great form. And that was as simple as that. We are now looking to the homecoming, so to speak, you know. Dermot O'Brien, what do you remember of the homecoming crossing the Boyne and heading into Drogheda? Just wonderful. The nearer we got to Loud, the, the, the more the excitement was building. And it was a rotten night. It was raining. It was, it was a nasty night. And uh, But we came into Drogheda. They reckoned there were, they reckoned there were thirty to 40,000 people in Drogheda that night. And as many more in Dundalk. And as I say, RD was jammed to the, to the doors at three o'clock in the morning. So it was just a, a, a fantastic occasion. Just, so just wish we could do it again. We remember going into the White Horse Hotel 
There was huge crowds that came out underneath the, the bridge there, the railway bridge on the south side of Drogheda. But as we came into Drogheda itself, they couldn't uh, take us off the, the lorry that we were on. They had to put planks into the first uh, floor uh, and we, we they took out the window and they took us in to the first floor of the hotel, not the reception area. After that, on the way home from Drogheda, Dunleer, Castle Bellingham, Logan Green, that's where I live myself, and uh, there was a dancing session going on there, and everybody was out there for about five or ten minutes again before we journeyed on into Dundalk. As Frank Lynch relates to there, the stop-offs on the journey home included Dunleer Village. Attending a loud homecoming back in the year 2000, the late Ollie Riley from Hunterstown can recall the scenes from over 40 years earlier. I remember being here in, in 57 in the same very same place and uh, Father Conlon and Dunleer making a speech here that night. From Meehan's garage into Dundalk, it was just hilarious. You know, there was so many people and that must have been 2 o'clock in the morning. At that stage it was. You still had to get to RD then later, I was sorry. I had to get to Knockbridge and uh, RD later on. And uh, I don't know if we went to Trollhead as well, I forget now. But I mean, I, we definitely finished. We had a big do in RD as well. And we had a cup of tea and whatnot, you know. But it was a great, a great occasion. There must have been a great sense of anticipation when the last destination was about to be reached RD, given the, the large St Mary's contingent on the team. Well, that's very true, Colm. There was such a crowd in RD that day below the fair green. You'd just swear it was the middle of the day. Three or four big bonfires burning there, and everybody was in oh, it. was just unreal. Something we'll never forget, Colm. I remember the next morning, the Mars priests were all out to me in Logan Green. To take me into the school, and this was on the Tuesday. No talk about rugby that day. No talk about rugby, <laughs> not a bit. Peter, brother of the goal scoring hero that day, Sean Cunningham. Tell me about the Cunningham family. Yeah, so seven boys and, uh, and one girl, they're all into football. Where did Sean, where did he fit in in the seven brothers? He was second last, next to me. And what about yourself? Did you play any football? I played for Young Islanders, yes. And, uh, senior football was some of the team that was the 1957 team. Some of them, Stephen White and Mickey Feldflood and Sean Ogan. I didn't play with always Sean because he went away to America. So. It was something special then, you know. On. The town went wild. Laura came through with all the, the over Hill Street Bridge into the dock, and everybody was meeting, and all the whole team was on it. And tell me, Sean, did he take it all in his stride? Was he was he a modest footballer? Yeah, he was. I mean, to say he didn't want the glory or anything. He just, you know, he'd be in the background more and more or less all the time. You know, he wasn't allowed to stay in the background. Then you can you can understand that because people who were coming up and congratulating him, and them days each player family got the Sam McGuire for a week and uh, we had the Sam McGuire in the house you know and everybody was calling can you imagine our house was like a Paddy's Market my mother was alive at the time and my father died very young yeah, so, so he, he didn't see the 57 victory he never seen the 57 victory he died in 1946 and so the All-Ireland champions of 1957 are now the man that took care of the team was uh, basically Jim Quigley he would leave his work at half 4.30 in the evening uh, he worked in Rossens at the time he would get all the footballs together take them over in a taxi along with um, the chairs and all the rest of it you know he, he put a huge effort into it as did the other selectors as well you know you had great time for Jim Sogger Quigley I most certainly had Quigley was the man as far as I was concerned 
and uh, Jim Quigley, after all, came down and rapped the, the classroom door and pulled me out and said, "We are going. You're coming to Ross, coming with us next Sunday." Like Jim Quigley did more to win in All Ireland for me than I did myself. And uh, like, okay, he believed in me and uh, all the rest of it. And I didn't know what I had in terms of talent or anything like this. I was doing always doing my best, but it. I was always under a certain amount of pressure, undoubtedly, because, okay, you had to be very fit to make up for, you know, maybe lack of physical strength and maturity uh, in those earlier years, you know. In the months which followed the All-Ireland victory, uh, Kevin, there was some controversy, of course. Uh, Jim Sauger Quigley uh, didn't continue as the team trainer, and then there was the ill-fated trip to New York in the spring. In hindsight, it, it didn't do us any good. And then, you see, I, I make a comment. Some fellas trying to win an All-Ireland are not the same when they win it. And that covers some of our players, not them all. I mean, they all thought they won it. No individual won it. I mean, it was a team effort. And you see, there'd be less controlled and Quigley was gone. Uh, Things weren't ever the same? No, no. Right, you went out and you played. And to me, soccer Quigley, at the time, he'd be in the title of manager, but he was a trainer. And he did it all. That fellow was a great footballer. Played with the young iron, played with my brother-in-law, Paddy Smith. Won Leinster Championships. Played with Leinster. He, he had all the credentials. Jim Quigley was not selected uh, as a selector in 1958. And I think there is no question that the players, loud players, must take responsibility for that. They might not think it, but I personally do, because it seems to be a lot of things that maybe some of the players have forgotten about, but I have not. Quigley, it'd make you cry to think of what was done on him. Uh, the fact that he was left behind for um, the game in... Gaelic Park, New York. When we arrived in, in, in New York, without Jim Quigley, it was a, it, you could see their faces drop. Where was Quigley? He wasn't there. It was only shortly after that when Laird had to go back into the Leinster campaign. They did well to get to the final. The final was played in Navin because Croke Park, the Hogan stand, Mark II, was being built at the time. So they had played in Navin and were well beaten in that. So back to the semi-final, I think, the following year. But uh, a good era was coming to the end at that stage, this, which had begun in 1943. It was becoming to, coming to an end, and it really ended in 1960. That was the final defeat to Offaly? That was the final defeat to Offaly's first ever Leinster final. They won it, first ever title, naturally enough, and they went on to win three All-Irelands afterwards. Lowe's didn't appear in the final for 50 years after that, 2010. In 1960, bad management on the line, lost the game to Offaly. Make no mistake about that. We have point. We were beaten by Offaly. Who were beaten after two games by the Great Down team? And we had good teams right up till 62. Very good teams, but at the right man at the helm, he, had he been left alone, I would venture to state we would have got a couple of All-Irelands. Ronan Dermot's son, your dad would have passed down some stories of uh, the goings-on of uh, 57. Any particular stories that stand out in your memory? The big one, of course, was the one not getting in the gates. You know, we kind of knew that story. He told that story a good bit, all right. Stories about the homecoming and about how many people were out and how late it was and, you know, who came to see them and all the bonfires and... Um, but in general, I suppose more than the stories, like with Daddy being such a famous entertainer, he'd travel around. And as you were growing older, we kind of grew up in Dublin. So we're kind of out of the hub of 
I've kind of loved football for for 16 years of my life. And But when we visited different counties and different places like Kerry, Donegal, the respect that people had, came to see the music, but wanted to talk about the football, regardless of when it was or where it was. And the respect that he gained around the country for leading loud to an All-Ireland, you know, was unbelievable. They won the title in 1957. Everybody was crying. I'll always remember it very clearly because it was it was the most humiliating feeling that we ever had in our lives. And it's hard to take a, to take a beating when, you, when you're beaten by a goal of that nature. Of that team, there are four still alive. Dennis Bernard, who was older than me, he was about, I think, about, he'd be about 85, 86. He lives in, in America and went to America shortly after, the, 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 a couple of weeks after the All-Islands. Tom Furlong, who is from Black Rock, and he's still alive. Sean Moore is living in Dublin and myself they're the four people left In the intervening year 60 years since now you've kept in contact with uh, some of the loud lads Dan Oh yes I've kept in fact with Frank Lynch uh, Frank and I have uh, a great time for Frank Lynch he's a very very fine fine person Tell me about your loud links My father's sister she was a butter maker and she came to loud working and she married, married a fellow called Clark and I have, I have a lot of I had a lot of first cousins of course Clark. Joe Clark played for loud played for loud back in the 1940s he was a great friend of mine as a matter of fact he and his wife were at my wedding and uh, any time I played I visited, played football in Croke Park. I always stayed one the night before to Joe Clark and stayed with him. Joe worked in the civil service. So where, where in Loud were the Clarks from? From Castle Bellingham. They live from Castle Bellingham. Anthony was the last one who died. He died there about ten, about seven or eight years ago. He was, he was the last of the Clarks. Mickey died at a very young age and Mickey's wife was only buried last year. We had a great relationship with our, co- with our cousins in Louds. Another sporting connection you have, uh, Dan, is the fact that a former uh, Dundalk player up until recently enough uh, is actually a relation yours. That's Daryl Horgan. Well, Daryl Horgan, yes. My, my I have a brother, Jory, who lives in Salt Hill. And Daryl Horgan is his grandson. I've met Daryl and know him very well. He's a, a very fine footballer. Egon O'Farrell, 38th president of the GA, a Cavan man, of course. Egon, you would have appreciated what that win of 57 would have meant for Louth. I wasn't born in 1957, and people in Ireland and in the GA, they always like the underdog. They always love when somebody can achieve greatness from, and they're not expecting it. So Louth would have had huge support among Cavan. Cavan at that time would have been doing well in the 52. They had won the All-Ireland, they won it in 33, 35, 47, 48, 52. So there would have been a great uh, delight and excitement in our part of the country, Cavan, Monon area for Louth. And I think it's wonderful that they're still remembering them and still honouring these fantastic heroes because they were that. And not only to win in All-Ireland, but to be Cork, smallest county against the biggest county. For all of us involved in the GA over the years and for my GA 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you'd always hope. You're always hoping that next year is Jerusalem and that next year a county like Louth. Uh, and as GA president, I'm always uh, encouraging people to look back on the past, commemorate events like 1957, but for heaven's sake, keep your two eyes on the future because we have to create new heroes and you have to write your own new history. We can't change the past, but we can change the future. Poor Dermot Lord of Michigan. I remember when he was getting the Hall of Fame uh, down in Dundalk and uh, I never forgot, he was ill at the time as a matter of fact, and he was getting his Hall of Fame and he says, you know, I wouldn't be standing here making this uh, speech about winning the All-Ireland, being captain of the All-Ireland, only for the unfortunate injury to meet a friend sitting down there, Patsy, and that was the way it was, you know, and that was the only time we, we never said anything about it, you know. In the intervening years, Jim, you've kept a very close eye on Loud teams. Have, have you any theories as to why Loud have come kind of nowhere close to repeating what the 57 team did all those years ago? Well, the only one that I sort of think about is the fact that there are now so many senior teams in Louth. The more senior teams you have, the fewer good quality players you have in each club. 
they're bound to be fewer. Some might be lucky and might have a great spread. Most of them, they might have two, three county standard and that I think has pulled down the overall standard I'd prefer to see what about maybe six, seven maybe eight teams senior teams So club is more quality? Yes and give them a much better chance I personally and, and the other members of the team too they came up a great, in a great time in loud football there was always hope uh, of winning a Leinster title or winning something and then to achieve the big thing the All-Ireland and after that you still had hope but uh, to think that in 2010 was the first time Loud were in a Leinster final from, since 1960 that was a big uh, stretch Club football was very strong when you were playing It was tremendous It was strong all over the county but particularly in Mid-Loud in, in Ardy and Stabannon and, and Darver you had great great players for the few of us that's, a, that's alive and knocking around when we get together we can tell stories you talk about people saying oh it'd be great if we won the lottery the lottery wouldn't have nothing to do with what we, the achievement that the joy we got out of that we'll never forget it Kevin Bean does it seem 60 years ago now since your All-Ireland success it's unreal when you stop and think about it you know but there's no point in looking back. I mean, I look back for the memories, you know, and I look forward to the future that something might happen and break. And we'd all be delighted to see Loud again because Loud for years and years. And, and, and the Marys particularly. I mean, you had great football in RD, which I, where I learned an awful lot from fellas like Kelly Mooney and Boyle, Jack Bell. I mean, don't forget that I once did the six Loud marks for the six Marys backs. When is it going to happen again? Never. It's different here from, we say, Kerry, where they're winning the All-Irelands every second year and all. They're doubling our now. But when one stands in isolation, as the 1957 win does, it's very, it's very special. And the people who played it are very special people, and they're always remembered. So, yeah. For towns with all of their beauty Here in the wee county of When Sam Crossed the Boyne was presented and produced by Colm Corrigan with sincere thanks to all guests. Archive material came courtesy of RTE Archives while special thanks goes to Brendan Matthews and Barney Carey for their contributions. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.